repeatedly in Scripture, being filled with the Spirit is linked to personal evangelism. Because people who are Spirit-filled people are folks who share their faith. They care about the things that Christ cares about. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Jesus promised. And if we're not fishing for men, we're really not following Him, and so we're not really, in the truest sense, consistently filled with the Spirit. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in a series that focuses on evangelizing. Pastor Carl began our series with How to Be a Courageous Witness by highlighting believers who were passionate about sharing the gospel in the book of Acts chapter 4. Then he addressed that by walking in obedience and understanding biblical truth, we can reach our fullest potential in sharing Christ consistently. Today, we will see that people who are spirit-filled people are those who share their faith with others. Today's sermon is entitled, Sharing Christ in the Spirit. Please, Join us in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 1, as we begin. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you are a visitor to this church, we believe that the Bible was authored by God Himself, not just the concepts, but the very words. We study the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, word by word, because Jesus said, down to the smallest jot and tittle, the Scripture is inspired. And when you begin to study the Bible in that fashion, it just comes alive. You begin to see that no man could have ever written this book apart from the divine inspiration of God's Spirit. Now, if you're here for the first time, we finished a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of James, and before fall ends, God willing, we hope to begin a new book in the Old Testament. But with that said, there's a number of issues you've asked me about, you've written me about, or I've just felt a burden to preach on. And so right now we are in a series on evangelism. We began by speaking of the topic of sharing Christ courageously. And of course, we looked at Acts 4, the apostles and the persecution they face. And my friends, persecution is growing around the world, and it is now meeting the Western Hemisphere. And so we need to be courageous. Then we spoke last time about sharing Christ consistently. And we looked at Philip the evangelist and how he was consistent, whether it was a large crowd or with a single individual. This morning we want to speak about sharing Christ in the Spirit. Jesus said, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. And then he said, But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Likewise, in Acts 1-4, Luke recorded, gathering them together, he committed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard of from me. And then he says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Repeatedly in Scripture, being filled with the Spirit is linked to personal evangelism, because people who are Spirit-filled people are folks who share their faith. They care about the things that Christ cares about. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Jesus promised. And if we're not fishing for men, we're really not following him. And so we're not really, in the truest sense, consistently filled with the Spirit. Now, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is very familiar. And sometimes the wonder of it is lost because it is so familiar. But I hope it will shock you. I hope it will uh, shake you this morning 
that you will look at it with fresh eyes. Now, here in John 15, just to set the context, John 13, if you remember, they were in the upper room. Uh, Jesus celebrated the Passover that night. But this Passover that was going to be literally enacted on Good Friday, as we call it, was a fulfillment of all the Passovers of centuries before. And then, and of course, they uh, are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. When you reach John chapter uh, 15, you discover at the end of 14, when the discourse, we call it the Upper Room Discourse, or the Upper Room Sermon, you could call it, I suppose. When that is finished, uh, after the Lord's table is instituted, they sing a hymn, and so very often... Uh, today in churches across the world, sometimes here at the end of the Lord's Supper, we sing a hymn because we have a biblical mandate or a real picture of that. And of course, he says at the end of 14, arise, let us go from here. And when you see where they leave and where they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives, between those two points, there's a vineyard. In fact, there's remains of that vineyard to this very day when you go to Israel. And it's in the midst of this vineyard that the Lord teaches us how to be filled with the Spirit. And unless we're filled with the Spirit, we will not be successful in this great commission that Christ has given to us. Let's begin by reading our text, John 15. I know people come here for the first time. They don't bring a Bible because they've never needed one before in a church. This is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. I'm not here to share my opinion. But if you don't have one, And many people come here and they say, the only Bible I have is a family Bible at home, and that's a little too big to bring. I agree. Come tonight to meet the pastor or Thursday night. We haven't live streamed in the truest, livest way, meet the pastor in a while, but we will live stream it as well on Thursday night for those who are listening this morning. John 15, I hope you found it. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, many times people call this section of Scripture the secrets of the vine. It's no secret at all. God wants you to apprehend, to comprehend, and to respond to the clear truths. And there are three principles that are underscored in this section. There's a note-taking outline. If you're new, place online for you to print it out. The first principle is the vine and its background. Let's talk about the origin of this imagery as we think about the vine and its background. Jesus states here in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The grapevine was a common sight in Israel. Vineyards were seemingly everywhere. It became the national symbol, just like the palmetto tree in this state is the symbol for our state of South Carolina. 
It was engraved on the temple. They put it on early coins. And so it's not surprising that throughout the Old Testament, in the physical land of Israel, that God would use a vine or a vineyard, both, to picture his people, Israel. And so when Jesus said, I am the true vine, it needs to be understood in light of what is revealed in the Old Testament. Now, it's rather interesting when you read the vine vineyard passages in the Tanakh or the Old Testament, this figure is used to describe Israel almost always in the context of judgment because of their disobedience. Uh, In Jeremiah 2.21, the prophet said, God speaking, yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Jeremiah is writing in a day where the people of Israel were guilty of idolatry. And so to contrast the degenerate vine of Israel, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And of course, you will remember uh, there's a parable that's recorded in both Matthew and in Mark. He gave it on Wednesday. This text we're reading took place on Thursday. Let me refresh your mind. We read it about a month ago, Matthew 21. He said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Again, this happened on Wednesday, the day before. This is on Thursday night where he's in this vineyard describing himself as the true vine. So he takes this parable of the vineyard again, used all the way through the Old Testament of Israel, and he applies it to the nation. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him, Jesus, that is, to be a prophet. Now, this is the background against which Jesus says, I am the true vine. Israel was the vine of God. He gently carried her along as he established a nation through Israel. He ultimately planted them in the promised land. He entrusted to them the word of God. They were the keepers of scripture. They were the appointed vine dressers who were to take that word and teach it to the people. But when the prophets of God came along, they treated them sorely bad, so bad, they ill-treated them, and ultimately, when the prophet, the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy came, the Son of God himself, they murdered him. And so what did it bring? Only a visitation of wrath. So since Israel was the custodian of the Scripture, God said for a period of time, He would remove the privileges of this promised kingdom. He's not done with Israel. Those who are amillennial are grossly misinformed. 
God is going to complete human history through the people of Israel. He is setting the stage. He has brought Israel back into the land just as he said he would do at the end of time before the second coming. They've grown from 20,000 to nearly 7 million Jews from over 100 nations of the world in Israel today. And not all of them will come back. There's only 12 and a half million Jews on the planet. God is setting the stage. He's laid aside Israel for a period of time. He is now using the church, the true church. There's the professing church, as we'll see. But there's the true church made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there will come a time when God will then even restore Israel. So it's in that context, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The Father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener, so to speak. He's the one who cultivates. He's the one who prunes. He's the one who works in your life. That's the vine in the background, all right? You with me? Let's go to point number two on your outline, the vine and its branches, the vine and its branches. We're told now in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus tells us the role of the Father as the vine dresser is twofold. First, he says he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. The Father prunes out the dead wood, the living fruit that needs to blossom and be full can't achieve that goal if there's a lot of dead wood in the vineyard. And even suckers, as we'll see, that rob the life and vitality that God wants to bring into the grape. And so God is the divine uh, vine dresser, is pruning and accomplishing specific purposes. Now, he begins this verse by saying, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, what precisely is he referring to? There's a lot of discussion over this one verse of Scripture. Some say, well, this is an illustration of Israel being cast off. Well, contextually, that's not true because these are people that didn't even embrace Jesus. He came to his own, and his own received him not, John recorded in the first chapter. Jews, as believers, have always been the exception. They've always been a remnant for the last 2,000 years. Some would say, well, these are folks who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, but then God removed them. They lost their salvation. No, 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 no. That's not even consistent with what John has recorded in his gospel, much less the rest of the Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Turn back a few pages to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6 for just a moment. This is one of a dozen passages in the Gospel of John that affirms our eternal security. And if you look at John 6 in verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Circle that word all, would you? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him, speaking of the Father, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all, circle the word all, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, underline that word nothing, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone, circle the word everyone, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is an irrefutable promise 
of all who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that every single one who looks or beholds the Son absolutely will be raised up on the last day. So for Jesus not to raise someone up who's come to faith on the last day would be to disobey the Father. But He didn't come to disobey the Father. He came to do the Father's will. So to say that you can lose your salvation is some take John 15, 2 to teach. One is they're saying Jesus is a liar, if they think about it. They're saying Jesus is a liar. I hope you're not wanting to call Jesus a liar. Not only are you calling him a liar, you're equally calling him as a sinner because now he is disobeying the Father's will for his life. Not only are you calling him a liar and a sinner, you're calling him weak, that he's incapable of doing that which the Father has commissioned him to do. Now, most people who deny the biblical doctrine of eternal security haven't really thought it through. They wouldn't want to say, well, he's a liar, he's a sinner, he's weak. But in essence, that is precisely, by implication, what they are teaching. So our Lord makes an unequivocal promise that every single one, from start to finish, will be secured by him. Now, back here in John 15, when I think the problem comes is that sometimes we take this phrase, in me, and we equate it with the Apostle Paul's words, in Christ. And of course, Jesus is using the metaphor of the vine to teach that every person who professes to be his disciple, who claims to be a branch, is not necessarily a branch. Some may appear to be a Christian, but they're not really a true Christian. So if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, the meaning of every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away, it becomes very, very clear. Take the parable of the lamp, for instance. It's found in Luke chapter 8. You might want to put Luke 8, 18 out in the margin. There Jesus taught that there were people who heard the gospel, people who outwardly responded to the gospel, but not in a genuine faith. There are people, sometimes you see the word believe in the Bible, and it's not always in reference to genuine belief. Now, whenever you see the word believe accompanied with the preposition in or into, it's always 100% of the time, without exception, describing real conversion. But when the word believe is alone, sometimes it can refer just to an intellectual knowledge. The demons believe, quote-unquote. And tremble. But in Luke 8, 18, after he tells the parable, he applies it. Therefore, take care how you listen, for, what it, for whoever has to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have or thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. There are some people who think they have salvation. They outwardly appear to have salvation, but there's no evident fruit of salvation. Put out in the margin as well, Romans 11, 16 to 24. I'll let you go home and read that whole section for the sake of time. There the Lord compares Israel to an olive tree. And because of their unbelief, he describes how he'll break off branches of the olive tree and graft in Gentiles who will genuinely and truly believe. And so, again, contextually, there are people who outwardly appear to be believers. And earlier this night, there was one at the table with him. His name was Judas. Judas said he was a Christian. He confessed that he was a Christian. 
but he was not a genuine Christian. And in the truest sense, he didn't bear true fruit. And fruit is an infallible mark of a genuine believer. For instance, in John 14, he said earlier that night, John 14, verse 20, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. A mark that you know Christ, that you've entered into a personal relationship with the living God, is that you love him, that is, you obey him. Again, in verse 23 of the same chapter, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Likewise, plainly on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this at the end of that great sermon. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. How many good trees bear good fruit? Every tree. There's no such thing as a good tree bearing bad fruit. Now, he's not talking about perfection here, that every good tree never sins. He's talking about nature, that if the nature of a tree is healthy, it's going to bear good fruit, period. If the nature of the tree is bad, you can prune it all you want, you can fertilize it all you want, but it's not going to produce good fruit. So Jesus repeats himself in verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. The principle in the New Testament is every true child of God bears real fruit. Now, sometimes it's not all that impressive. There's some lingering, somewhat less than fresh grapes. Some look like raisins. <laughs> but there's real fruit if someone is truly, genuinely saved. It's an impossibility for you to confess Jesus and not to show evidence. You either bear fruit or you are dead wood. There's really not much in between. Now, you'll notice when we come down to verse 6 that once the branch is removed, we'll look at it in a moment, it is burned. And by the way, those who say you can lose your salvation, verse 6 says a whole lot more than they want it to say because it's burned. It doesn't have another chance. It's burned. You're not born again, then unborn again, then born again again, and then unborn again again, and then born again again again. No, you're saved once. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you forever, and forever means forever. So the Father's role is as the heavenly vine dresser, and it's expressed in two principal ways. First, to cut every branch that does not bear fruit, and we'll see again their end in a moment. But second, he prunes. Is noted in the margin, if you have the New American Standard with the marginal notes, sometimes it will give you a more literal rendering. It may sound a little archaic, but it says on the margin, he cleanses every branch that does bear fruit. Why? So it can be more fruitful. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So pruning in a vineyard is not optional, it's imperative. Fruitfulness is imperative. That's the whole reason a vineyard exists. And so pruning is done so that unproductive growth is removed and maximum fruitfulness is achieved. My father is the vine dresser. And so the branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. And God has many creative ways of pruning us. Uh, let me just say parenthetically here too. It's the father who is the vine dresser. We don't need to be self-appointed vine dressers. We don't need to play the role of God the Holy Spirit. 
God's the one who is the vine dresser. Now, God may use you in the pruning process as you share the Word of God, and it brings conviction. But let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Don't play the role of the Holy Spirit. But just like a vine dresser knows precisely where to put the knife, the exact angle in which to cut the, 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 the wood or the sucker, even so, God knows precisely how it is that we need to be pruned. And He does it for our good, ultimately, that He might be glorified. It's not by accident. In this portion of Scripture, fruit is mentioned eight times. I have it circled. Three times in verse uh, 2, twice here in verse 4, once in verses 5, verses 8, and then again in verse 16. God is committed to you because He loves you, as Jesus is going to emphasize here before this whole section is completed. He's committed to shaping the Lord Jesus Christ in you. And pruning, well, it can be painful, but the outcome is great. So how does the Father prune us? Well, He certainly convicts us or cleanses us. Um, Sometimes, according to Hebrews 12 or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, He gives us a divine spanking. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. You don't discipline the next-door neighbor's children, only your own. So it is with the Heavenly Father. He doesn't discipline the pagan. He only disciplines the one who's born again. And so if someone can live in sin and not experience divine discipline, it just means their profession is empty. It's not real. He might discipline us physically, 1 Corinthians 11.30. He might discipline us financially. He might discipline us relationally. But He knows how to ring your bell. He knows how to get our attention. Why? Because He wants us to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James tells us that when we're in the pruning process, we need to consider it all joy. We need to count it joy. So we can moan and groan and bellyache when we're under the divine knife, but we're missing what God wants to do. And sometimes He has to do it all over again. That's the point of James 1. Now look at verse 3, if you will. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean. You could write over that you are already saved because that's the essence of what He is saying. On two occasions in the Gospel of John, the Lord uses the word clean in order to underscore those who are saved. For instance, not an hour or so before, in John chapter 13, you might want to put it in the margin, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And then he says in verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, you are not all clean. Once you've been saved, you have been clean. Now, one of the lessons of foot washing is not just that we need to be servants, though we do, but there was a much deeper lesson, if you know the passage, that Jesus said they wouldn't get that night, but they would get hereafter, later on. And the point was, is that once you're saved, you are forever clean. But as you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. Please join us tomorrow for part two of Sharing Christ in the Spirit. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Sharing Christ Consistently 021. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally. 
You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.